We're in 1 Samuel chapter 31, if you want to open your Bibles there. Today, uh, I think, if my math is correct, it's exactly one year since we started uh, this, this book. And so it took us a year to get through 1 Samuel. And just to give you a glimpse ahead, we're, uh, next week we're going to do a special message. And then the week after that, we're going to roll right into 2 Samuel as it's really a continuation of the accounts here. So... First uh, Samuel 31, as, uh, as you make your way there. And as you're making your way there, just by way of introduction, I don't know if you saw the, uh, the, the story on the news, but there was a San Diego man just a, a couple of weeks ago was bitten by a rattlesnake. Uh, he was uh, at a, a racetrack down there, found a rattlesnake, and uh, decided not only that he would pick it up, but he thought, thought he'd take a selfie with it, Right? $158,000 hospital bill, and over 80000 of that was for anti-venom, uh, cleaned out the hospital where he was at and uh, cleaned out another hospital of all their anti-venom as well, and his pharmacy bill was like $85,000 or whatever. How stupid is that? I mean, you pick up, a, you know, hey, there's a, there's a snake that could kill me. Let me pick it up and take a picture with it, you know? And now I tell you this story by way of introduction because... Um, you know, really, if you think about what was going through this guy's mind when he picked up that snake, and you think about what happened just before that deadly reptile that could have killed him, bit him, well, what was the picture? Well, the picture was, you know, him getting his phone, and who was he focusing on? He's literally focusing on himself. Let me get me, let me get the snake, let me get the, 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 the look just right, and that thing bit him. Well, this is Saul in his life. Saul has been living a life that has been incredibly self-focused, and that's what we're going to look at today. The title of the message is The Danger of Selfies, right? <laughs> the High Cost of Selfies, right? All right, so 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 31 In verse 1 we read, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now we left Saul in chapter 28. And chapter 28 set this stage. It basically said that the Philistines were were amassing together uh, to attack. And Saul was freaking out along with all the the rest of the Israelites. Why was he freaking out? Well, he was freaking out uh, because they're greatly overwhelmed, greatly outnumbered by the forces that are gathered against him. But but he's most freaking out because he is all alone. He here now with the Philistines gathering to attack, he, he doesn't have David around to help him. He doesn't have Samuel the prophet around to help him. He's died and gone home to be with God. Right, And now he can't even hear from God. If you remember when we were in chapter 28, Samuel, or Saul rather, going to God when he sees all of these forces and he's crying out to God and he's saying, you know, God, what, what's going on here? And, and, and can, you, can you speak to me and what should I do? And the text tells us that God wouldn't speak to Saul. Now why wouldn't God speak to Saul? Here's why. Because Saul in his life... He started off great, right? He, 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 the, the people cried out for a king. He stood head and shoulders above the rest. He just looked like a king, looked the part. You know, they, the, the cast went out from central casting and Saul fit the bill. And so he got it. And in the beginning, he was honoring God. He was serving God. He was, he was faithful to be used by God. But along the way, a couple of years into his rule as the king, well, he started to believe his own press clippings. Saul got to the place to where, you know, he became incredibly self-focused to the point to where he erected a monument, you know, after himself. He started to take credit for the Lord's victories that God was giving to him. And then the straw that broke the camel's back, I think it was chapter 14, chapter 15, God told them when they were attacking uh, the, the Amalekites that they were to utterly destroy them. And the Amalekites being a picture of sin. And God knowing what's best for us and wants us to utterly destroy sin. Well, he had commanded Saul, go and utterly destroy them. Don't take any of their stuff. Well, Saul thought he knew better than God. He went and he decided, well, you know what? Some of this stuff is good. Calling good what God had already called bad. 
by the way, we, we do that in our lives. It's like God speaks to us, wants us to, you know, utterly destroy the sin in our life. And there's some things that we, we want to keep. We want to keep a pet sin, you know. I, I just want to pick this rattlesnake up, you know. Be so good. So, so Saul focused on this stuff. And, and he decides he's not going to kill the, the King Agag. He wants to keep him alive. He's not going to utterly destroy all this stuff. He's going to keep some of the stuff for himself. So Samuel the prophet goes to call him on his sin. And how does he greet him? He greets him by saying, hey, praise the Lord. I, I, you know, I've honored God. I've obeyed God. And Samuel's like, well, then what's all the sheep and the cattle that, that I'm seeing, you know, hearing and, and all? And, and so then he goes to plan B, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't profess to, to honor the Lord anymore. And now he starts making excuses, you know. Oh, well, it's the people. It's the people. The people wanted to keep all this stuff. I'm, I'm just making them happy kind of thing. And Saul's like, dude, you know what? God's done with you. He, he, call, he was going to anoint you. He was going to bless you. But you've made it all about you. Now you're not going to obey God. And so you're not going to be king anymore. So, so what did Saul do at that point? Saul just wants to maintain the image. So he tells Samuel, well, you know what? Just appear with me before the people. And, and he gets to the place where he's more concerned about his image. More concerned with hanging on to things, you know. Sometimes we can be that way. We, we put more effort into our image than we put into, you know, actually obeying God. My, my son, when, when he was acting in Hollywood, he was, he was on Seventh Heaven. And, um, you know, he's on it for several seasons. And he, for his school, he decided he was going to take some pictures uh, of, you know, life on the set and kind of do a little report about that. And so we went to the producers. We said, hey, can we, you know, you guys cool if he takes some pictures on set? And they said, well, yeah, just so long as you don't break the fourth wall. Now, breaking the fourth wall, what that means is that, you know, as you look at a set from the camera angle, you see what looks like, you know, a, a house. So you've got three walls and the furniture and everything in it, and it looks like a house. But if you turn around and you look at the fourth wall, what do you see? Well, you see camera, camera operator, boom, guys holding the mics, you know, you got a script supervisor and the director and a bunch of other people sitting in chairs and craft services. What do you see? You see the thing that tells you, this, none of this stuff is real. It's fake. It's phony. Now, they, the producers know that you know that it's not real. There's not really <coughs> a Camden family, you know. <coughs> it's just a TV show, but they just don't want to remind you of it. You know, they'd like you just to kind of go along and, re- and just think of them as a family. Think of that as their home. Well, this is the way Saul is. He's like, hey, you know what? All right, so I didn't really obey God. <laughs> All right, so I did take the stuff. All right, so God is done with me because I'm not giving over to him. But hey, let's maintain the image and let's just keep it going here and you, you know, come along with me. Now, this has been Saul's way just over and over and over again. He's been living this way to where he's not really concerned with the things of God. He pays him lip service, but, he, but he's not living a surrendered life to God. His life is incredibly self-focused. And because his life is self-focused, when the Amalekites are all gathering, or rather when the Philistines are all gathering now in chapter 28 where we left him, and they're, they're amassing their forces, when he goes running to God, the reason God doesn't answer him is because it's just more of the same. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. I want to live the way I want to live, and I want to, you know, and now I'm in trouble, and so now I can go to God and treat him like a genie in the bottle, and I get my three wishes, and, you know, that's, that's how it'll go. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is the way that Saul has been living his life, incredibly self-focused and not given over to the things of God. And so now he goes to God in chapter 28, hey God, how about helping me out? God's silent. God won't talk to him. So then what's he do is he goes and he finds the witch of Endor. He's like, hey, would you conjure up for me Samuel? Because God won't talk to me. So can, can you at least get, and it's ironic because he spent his whole life 
running from Samuel, ignoring the, the, the accountability of Samuel. But now, man, any port in a storm, I'm just looking for somebody who'll talk to me here. I'm in trouble. And he goes to Samuel. And, and so anyway, the only word that he gets from God after all of this is tomorrow you're going to die. Well, chapter 31 is tomorrow. And tomorrow has come. You ever go on vacation and you just go crazy with your credit card? And when you get home, what's waiting for you in the mailbox? The bill for what you did, right? So chapter 31, for Saul, the bill comes due. He's like, you know, why did I have to go out to eat at 28 different places on vacation? You know, was it really worth, you know, all this money that I spent? So here it is for Saul. It's tomorrow. He's getting the bill. And what we see now is the high cost of Saul's self-willed life. First thing, if you're taking notes, the high cost of Saul's self-willed life, it cost Saul the loss of his army. Cost him the loss of his army. The Israelites, it says here in verse 1, fell slain on Mount Gilboa. What they had done is when the Philistines are attacking, they mobilized their armies, and Mount Gilboa was, was their home camp. That was their base. That's where they assembled. And they went out from there to oppose the Philistines who had invaded deep into their territory. And so now the fact that we read that the Philistines fought against them and that the men of Israel fled from before them on Mount Gilboa, what that means is that they had infiltrated even further. They had perforated or or they had had, had, uh, broken their ranks. And they're now in their territory. And the, the, the significance of that is that they have them on the run. These guys are now in full retreat. Now, what caused this wasn't because the Philistines had them vastly outnumbered. That's not what caused this. What caused this was Saul's self-centered focus and and his sinful compromise in his life. See, Saul and his army could only rule to the extent that they themselves were ruled by God. You might want to write that down. You can only rule to the extent that you are ruled by God. And and this, no doubt, is why there's a break between chapter 28 and chapter 31 in the telling of the story. This chapter 28 is all about Saul doing more of the same. I'm going to go to God on my terms. I'm going to ask God to bless my plan. I'm going to say, oh, you know, yeah, I know that I, didn't, that I disobeyed you, that I've tried to kill your anointed David, and that I've spent my whole life just trying to hold on to my empire and not being surrendered to your kingdom. But hey, now the enemies are coming. Would you fight the enemies for me? And God is silent, right? Well, it leaves it hanging there. You're going to die tomorrow. And then chapter 29 doesn't tell us about tomorrow. What happens? It goes into what's going on with David. Why? Well, because God is giving to us an example. He's a being, two men in two different lives. And so what we see as we continue in and between the place where we left cliff hanging, hey, tomorrow you're going to die, and then tomorrow coming, what happens? Well, we get to see David again. And what's happening in David's life is in his season of life was that he began to go the way that seemed right to him. The Bible says the way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So David, a man who was characterized as trusting God, following God, serving God, doing what God called him to do, got to the place where he began to doubt God, and he got into his own will, and God, just like he tried to do with Saul, God intervened and began trying to work in David's life, trying to get David back to the place where David needed to be. And and so, how did David respond to this? Well, David repented. David repented and he listened to God. And when he repented and listened to God, we began to see the fruit of that in David's life. Now, in stark contrast to that, Saul, even when he's had chance after chance after chance, even even though he's had great failures, one right after the other, God giving him all these opportunities to turn to him and to surrender and to repent Saul won't do that. He just continues to go back 
and continue in the, in the direction, the, the strong-willed, hard-headed direction that he was going. And so we get to see a contrast here. David repented, Saul didn't. And so the contrast between them is, is striking. Because we see, while David repented in the ashes of Ziklag, which, represent, which represented a completely self-willed focus on David's part, and he strengthened himself in the Lord, Saul, on the other hand, he stood in his own strength against the Philistines. Still, here, standing in his own strength against the Philistines. While David consulted the Lord, David in that place where he's at Ziklag and he's in the ashes and he's, everything looks horrible. <coughs> what does David do at that point? He consults the Lord. He calls Abathar the priest with the ephod. And David consults the Lord as God has instructed in his word that he should do. What does Saul do? Saul consults with, with the dead through the witch in Endor. While David pursued the Amalekites, God spoke to him, gave him direction. He had repented and humbled himself and said, God, should I do this? And God, God speaks to David and says, yeah, go ahead and do it. And so David, he, he pursued the Amalekites. And what happened is he got a full recovery of all that he had lost. Saul, on the other hand, he pursued his own path. And now, not full recovery, he's in full retreat. Hey, which, which of those best describes you right now? Just in your season of life? Are you in a season of pursuing the things that God has commanded you to do, experiencing full recovery? Or are you in a season where you're pursuing your own selfish ends and, and you're in full retreat? Turn real quickly to Ephesians chapter 6. Here in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to the Ephesians, he's talking to them about, you know, hey, look, what's, what kind of warfare are we in? He tells them in verse 10 that we're to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And the contrast being, don't be strong in yourself and in your own power. And, and, and he goes on and he says, you know, in being strong in the Lord, you need to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then he says, why? He says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here's the deal. We live a spiritual life, and our enemy is a spiritual enemy. Now, the tricky part about it is, is that we're flesh and blood. We live in a flesh and blood world. And so when we encounter things, there's an occasion on our lives to, to respond to things in the physical. And so if I have a conflict with my wife and I'm not in the spirit recognizing, hey, look, this, this is a spiritual battle. It's not a physical battle. Well, then what happens is I just focus on the physical. And so then, then it's, a, it's a matter of, I, I see things through, through a carnal perspective. But if I recognize, look, this is a spiritual battle, well, then what happens is I begin to fight the battle in a spiritual way. And so what I begin to discover when I'm in that mindset is that, you know, whatever the argument may be, so often when we look at it, what do we, what do we come to? Well, maybe it's a situation where, Really, if I honestly look at it, I've been selfish and self-centered. And, and, and James, you know, in, in, in his epistle, he asks, of course, he says, where do fights and wars come from among you? And he goes on to answer it. He says, don't they come from your selfish desires that battle within? As you want and you covet and you need to have and you, you know, murder and strive and war to get what you want. And so maybe in your marriage, you're like, we're having this big conflict, and, and in the physical, I might accuse my wife of, well, this is because, you know, you're a nag, and this is because, you know, this is what's going... The guys, don't ever say that if you want to sleep in your own bed that night, all right? Women hate that word. 
But, but, you know, whatever it is, as you're, you're going through, you might say, well, it's all you, you know, like Adam tried to tell God. It's that woman you gave me, God, you know. She's the basic problem around here. But as, as you go through it, if you're in the spiritual, you might go, well, guess what? I really am being selfish and self-centered. And, and so spiritually speaking, maybe the answer here is that I need to deny myself and I need to, you know, uh, here's a thought. Think about somebody else instead of myself for a change, whatever it might be. And, uh, and we can erase that part out of the message so my wife doesn't use that against me, guys. All right, that'd be good. No, so, so the thing is, is that what Paul is saying here to the Ephesians, he's saying, look, your battles, you got to understand, they are spiritual. There's a spiritual battle that we're, that we're involved in. And so he goes on, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. So he's going to tell us, look, there's spiritual armor that we need to be wearing. So he starts off and says in verse 14, stand therefore. And this is, by the way, this is what I want you to get, is that God has called us to contend, to fight a war. And he says, you're supposed to stand in there. You're supposed to take a stand and fight as men and women of God. And, and, and fight against the, the, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in your life that are sailing your life. So <clears throat> he says, stand <clears throat> therefore, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to, to withstand an evil day. Stand therefore, verse 14, having girded your waist with truth. Now again, think about this in, in <clears throat> the life of Saul. He didn't gird his waist with truth. He girded with lies. Samuel showed up to hold him accountable earlier in the book, chapter 15, and his response was, ah, praise the Lord, I've obeyed the Lord. Samuel's like, no, you haven't. That's a lie right there. You didn't kill the Amalekites like you were supposed to. You didn't utterly destroy all the stuff like you were supposed to. See, he, he, he didn't gird himself, his waist, with, with, with the truth. Paul continues, he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness... Again, you know, Saul hasn't put on the, the breastplate of righteousness. He's disobeyed God. He hasn't obeyed God. He's not righteous in his actions. You get, you get the point here? And so the fact is, is that Saul hasn't girded himself to, to fight this spiritual battle. And, you know, Paul goes on. He, he, he says, <clears throat> breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Saul, Saul hadn't taken that shield of faith. He didn't have faith when God told him to utterly destroy the Amalekites and not keep any of their stuff. No, he had faith in, oh, that's good stuff. I want to keep that. He's walking by the physical, not walking according to the spiritual. And he say, Paul continues, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end and perseverance, uh, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So what's, what Paul is saying here is there's a spiritual battle to be fought. And as we fight this battle, there's armor that we need to put in and God expects us to take a, 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 an offensive position. He expects us and, and, and to, to incorporate the defensive measures as well that are consistent with, with his provision. But what don't you see here in the armor of God? What you don't see here in the armor of God is anything to protect your back. Why? Because God doesn't want you in retreat. He doesn't want you in retreat. He wants you to, to be attacking and going against the attack of the enemy, to, to oppose the attack of the enemy. Right, And so what is happening here is that Saul, being in this place where, where he's been selfish and self-centered and self-focused, he's all about the physical, he's all about the trusting in himself, Saul has, has lost his army. Great cost. He has lost this armor. Lost this army. Well, sadly, it doesn't end there. You go back to our text. It doesn't end there. Saul's self-willed life not only costs him his army, but also costs him the loss of his sons. Verse 2, it says, Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and, and, and Malchizua, Saul's sons. Now, understand that this is Saul's doing. 
Saul's got nobody to blame for the death of his sons but he himself. Because what happened was Saul disobeyed God. He disqualified himself as king. And in so doing, when God replaced him with David, a man after his own heart, it set a very ugly stage. See, in this day and age, the custom was that when one king would be deposed and another king would rise up, then they had this quaint little custom where the king that rose up would kill all the family members of the king that was deposed. Why? Well, because they didn't want them fighting them for the kingdom, right? And now David, he's, this is not his character. This is not his nature. He's already even settled with Jonathan to say, look, I'm not going to... I'm not going to kill you, man. And, and Jonathan's saying, dude, I'm not going to oppose you either. I, think you, I can see that you're the king that God has called. He's anointed you. Dude, I want, I want, to, I want to help you. I want to be beside you as you rule in, in the kingdom that God has given to you. So David and Jonathan, they've already all settled this. But listen, not Saul's other sons. And this works both ways. David might not be of the, the type or the character that says, once I replace Saul, I'm going to take out all of his family and I'm going to kill all of his sons. That might not be in David's heart, but listen, this isn't in the hearts of his other sons. See, had they lived, they would have never accepted David. They would have never accepted David's rule. And so what you would have had is ongoing and continuing war and division and rebellion within the people of God, and God didn't want that. One commentator says this of David's son, or of Saul's sons being killed. He says, although it's tragic, their death was important in God's plan. By the death of the logical heirs to, uh, heirs to Saul's throne, God cleared the way for David to become the next king of Israel. And now again, what I want you to see, though, is that Saul caused this. This is all entirely Saul's doing by his sin and by his rebellion. See, had Saul obeyed God, his sons would have been king, right? How do we know that? Well, this was God's promise through the prophet Samuel back in chapter 12. But what happened was Saul sinned and he changed everything. God's like, guess what? You can't be king anymore. Because you've got sin, that means i gotta, I got to put David in place. And Saul sealed the fate of his family. Like it or not, your sin affects other people. You know, I, I serve on the board of directors of several different churches. And one of the boards that I serve on, one of the churches, they, they had a, a tragedy that happened not too long ago within their church where they had, you know, one of the, the members of their church, the guy who... Um, you know, godly man, godly family, faithful tenders of the church, but this, this guy started to wander away from God. He, he began to, to behave in, in, in ways that were compromising, and, uh, and they were just little things, and just, he just, you know, started, your compass is off by, by just one degree, you know, and you're heading to Hawaii, You'll miss the island by miles. You know, you'll, 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 you'll just sail out into the Pacific. They, you know, like MH360, they don't find, you, they don't find any trace of it, you know? And so, so, the, so the, the, the issue here is that this man started just getting off track just a little bit, just starting to, to wander away from God. And so, so one day, here he is, he's on his way home from work, and he decides, you know, I'm going to swing by and grab myself a couple of tall boys and have a, you know, have a beer. And so he, he's going along and he decides, oh, yeah, I'm going to crack this thing open and have a drink. You know? So he's drinking and driving. Well, he wrecks his truck and, uh, and you know, blows his blood alcohol. Well, guess what? He's over the legal limit. Well, okay, you're, you're going to the Gray Bar Hotel. <laughs> you know? You're going to jail. Well, not only does he go to jail, not only has he only got a DUI, he's got to deal with that, but, you know, he injured, you know, a person in the, the car that he hit, so, so, so he's got that. And he's driving his company truck, so now he's, now he's fired, loses his job completely, well, he's the sole provider of his family. Now, his wife didn't sin, but they lost everything. 
So she got hurt in the process. His kids didn't sin. But dad train wrecked their life. And so now they get hurt in the process. And, you know, the, the, the implication, the application for us, it's obvious, but I'll just connect the dots just in case you need me to. Where are you at? What kind of decisions are you making? Because you're not just the only one that's going to pay the price. The bill will come due for your self-centered, sinful decisions. And so in Saul's life, costs the loss of his sons. High price to pay. Well, that's not just the, the, the costs. They, the hits just keep on coming. See, not only does it cost him his army, not only does it cost him his sons, but it also cost him his life. Look at verse 3. We continue. It says, The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. These Philistines were incredibly cruel, and they were known to torture their victims. And they would make them die very slowly. And so Saul knows this. He's like, I don't want that to happen to me. So he asks his armor bearer, would you kill me? But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and he fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. And so Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And so Saul's sin is very costly. It cost him his army, cost him his sons, now costs him his life. Now, this brings up a subject that, that, that we need to talk about. Subject to suicide. And what we need to deal with is, okay... How does God view suicide? How does he look at suicide? Because there are those that hold to the position that that say, look, if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. Now, is how does God look at suicide? What is suicide in the eyes of God? Flat out it's sin. At the very least, suicide is murder. You're taking your own life. Paul said to the Corinthians that your life isn't your own. He said, you were bought at a price. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, we're supposed to glorify God in our body. So if you take your life, it's murder and it is not glorifying God with your body. And so absolutely it's sinful. Now I want to come back to that because we have more to say about that aspect of suicide. But To answer the question, if you commit suicide, are you going to hell? The answer is it all depends. And here's what it depends on. Are you a child of God who has invited Jesus Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior? Because that's the only thing that can separate you from the love of God is the rejection of Jesus Christ. You say, well, gosh, Pastor Ted, it sounds like you're endorsing suicide. No, I'm not. We'll come to that part of it here in just a half second. But let me say this, that, I mean, my, my grandmother committed suicide. Um, and, I, and I honestly don't know where she stood with the Lord. I don't know if she knew the Lord. Um, and there's much there maybe to suggest perhaps she didn't. Maybe you've had a loved one that's committed suicide. Listen, the only thing that can separate you from from heaven, from being saved, is if you reject Jesus Christ. So it is possible for a Christian who's taken their life, who truly is a, a believer in the Lord, it is possible for them to go to heaven because all of our sins are forgiven. Now having said that, and let me be very clear, I want you to understand that suicide is never a good option. It's a horrible choice. We've already covered it's sinful because it's murder, but it's, it's also sinful because it puts you in the place where you're playing God. 
You're called to glorify God with your body. And you're, you're, you're playing God. You're putting yourself in a place where you want to decide who lives and who dies. And listen, it interferes with God's will. Now, we have biblically a great illustration of that in the book of Acts. If you read in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, what happens there is Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. And when they're thrown in jail, they're put in the inner stocks, and and this is that great section where it says, you know, about midnight, there they are in agony, and they're worshiping the Lord, and they're singing praise to the Lord, and and all the prisoners are listening to them, and and there's, there's just a great picture there of how we're supposed to live our Christian life, that regardless of our circumstance, Paul said, whether I abound or whether I abase, I'm going to worship the Lord, I'm going to praise the Lord. I know, I know what it is to, to be in plenty. I know what it is to be in want. And, and, and so we as Christians, we're to, we're to glorify God. We're to, we're to worship Him through our circumstances. And that carries lots of currency with those unbelievers that are, that are watching us go through the trials and circumstances in our, of our lives. It's a tremendous witness. So Paul and, and, and Silas, they're there worshiping God. And a great earthquake strikes And what happens is their chains are loosed, all the doors of the prison are blown open, and the Philippian jailer comes running in, he sees all the doors wide open, automatically assumes all the prisoners have escaped. Well, what's the problem with that? Not just that the prisoners escaped, but if you were a jailer in that day and age, if your prisoners got away, they'd kill you. So he thinks, I'm dead. This thing, it's over for me. So what's he do? He, he, he grabs a sword and he's going to kill himself. And Paul cries out. He says, dude, don't do it. Don't kill yourself. We're all here. And so this guy is, is just absolutely moved. And his response is to talk to Paul and Silas and basically says, what must I do to be saved? And what goes on from there is that the Philippian jailer is saved, gives his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then it says his whole family was saved, giving their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what would have happened if the guy would have killed himself? Well, he would have prevented God from doing this incredible work of taking him for all of eternity from a, from a future damned to hell So now he's a child of God getting to experience the kingdom of God for all of eternity in his his presence or pleasures forevermore. And so so here's a guy who had nothing and was going to take his life out. And yet because he didn't kill himself, he saved his whole family. And their course of their life is profoundly changed. And so what we need to understand is that we need as Christians... To trust in the Lord and to not ever get to the place to where I'm going to play God. And some of you here today, that is a word from God directly to you. I know as sure as I'm standing here that some of you are dealing with thoughts of of suicide. And, and, And God brought you here today. And you need to hear that God loves you. That no matter how dark it looks in your life right now, that, that God is going to carry you through that. And you need to trust in the Lord. That's a word from God to you. You need to trust in him. Now, as you kind of cook on that, <clears throat> one of the things I want to point out is that Saul, he's, he's apparently not very good at this. Because what happens is he begs the guy to kill him. The guy won't kill him. He falls on his sword. Now, the account says that he dies, and we know ultimately that he, does, that, that he does die. But what we're going to see when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 1 is that David's going to happen upon an Amalekite. He's going to be talking to this dude, and this guy's going to tell him, hey, yeah, guess what? Yeah, look, I've got, I've got Saul's, you know, crown and, and, and all, and, and, uh, and here's how I came to get it. Um, you know, he fell on his sword, but he wasn't dead, so he begged me to kill him. And so, so uh, I killed him because, you know, he asked me to. Now, the guy could have totally been lying. It could have been an absolute flat-out lie, but it could have been the truth. 
And, and, and I'll tell you, I, you know, I'm not saying that this is, this is the way it was, what I'm about to say. I'm just, these are wonderings, okay? Your pastor just wondering about this text. Because, you know, we talked about when, when Samuel, when Saul went to the witch of Endor and he wanted to talk to Samuel, and the, all of a sudden Samuel comes up, shocks the witch. He's like, whoa, what's going on here? She clearly was a charlatan and didn't normally do that. And there's great debate within the church of was it truly Samuel or, you know, was it a demon? And, uh, and you know, lots of guys are debated. Some guys say, no, that's, it's, it was a demon just showing up and lying. And others go, well, you know, gosh, maybe it was God. He did tell him accurately that he was going to die the next day. I don't know. I, you know, it, I, I think that it, it really was God who allowed, you know, Samuel to appear. And, and you know, we, we went through that here in the message a couple of weeks ago. But, but what if it wasn't? What if it was a demon? See, because if, if that's the case, well, then what's happened is that, you know, the enemy has just told Saul this lie. Dude, you're going to die tomorrow. Now Saul's got it in his head and in his heart. Well, what's the point? I mean, I just, I just give up. I mean, you know, what's the use? And, and so then what happens is he gets hit by the archers. He's like, oh, dude, it's, I'm done for. And then, you know, oh, armor bearer, kill me. Well, I ain't going to do it. Okay, I'll follow my own sword. Well, that didn't work. I'm still alive. But now I have to beg somebody else. Well, look, I, I, I heard, you know, Samuel told me I'm going to die. So just, just kill me. Get it over. Get over. I, you know, I don't know. But here's what I do know. God gave Saul chance after chance after chance to come to him. You're not dead yet. You still haven't cried out to me. You're not dead yet. You still haven't cried out to me. You're not dead yet. You still haven't cried out to me. See, the, 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 the point isn't who killed Saul. The point is what killed Saul. And the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think the saddest part of what I read here in chapter 31, it's what Saul didn't say. Because even in his final moments, he still didn't call out to God. He still didn't repent. He still didn't reconcile. Let me ask you, what about you today? I mean, what, what's going on in your life? What have you been doing in a self-centered attitude, a self-centered focus, maybe in a building of your empire kind of thing and disregarding the things of God? And maybe God's given you chance after chance after chance just to give it up, man, just to cry out to God, just to say, Lord, I surrender. I'm done doing it my way. I'm going to do it your way. Well, because Saul is in this place where he, he just won't give up the ghost, man. He won't let go of his own will. Because he's bound and determined to have it his own way. He loses his army, loses his sons. He loses his life. And I want you to see another cost that, that Saul paid. It cost Saul's people the loss of their hope. Look at verse 7. It says, when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and they dwelt in them. They forsook the cities and fled. I was just, you know, it's funny. I, I was reading an article in the National Review uh, and they were talking about Detroit. And basically the, the author of this, art, of, this, of this article that was written there Likened Detroit to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and how, you know, the, hey, if I can just find ten righteous people, will you not destroy the, kind of, the, the city kind of deal? And, and, and just how it's just completely a city that's being destroyed. And so when I read they forsook the cities and fled, I just think about all of the cities that, are, that the people have forsaken the cities and fled. And my question, my wondering goes to the fact of where are the godly leaders? Because, you know, like it or not, people are looking to you and they're looking to me. And the way you live your life will either give people hope and instill faith within them, or it will make them discouraged 
and want to give up. Jesus said this. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, so here's my question for you, because Saul's disobedience and self-focus caused these people to lose their hope. What about your life? Are you living a life where you're self-focused, where God's Spirit is not going to be upon you, and where you're going to experience a significant derailment? And are there people that are around you who you're being a witness to, who you could cause to derail? Most obvious application here of dads and moms is your kids. You kids watch you, man. You know, it's been said, you're writing the gospel, chapter each day, the things that you do by the words that you say. And people read what you write, whether it's faithless or it's true. Hey, Christian, what's the gospel according to you? And so, so the way that you live will either give people hope and help people to, to, to experience the, the continued victory in their life, or you're going to completely derail, and you're going to, they're going to lose hope. I just saw a pastor this last week. He, he had you know, this, this phenomenally successful church, and it phenomenally failed, and the reason it phenomenally failed was because of his sin. And in tears, the man was just in a place where he said his, it, the, the most painful thing of the whole deal is knowing that there were people that were once going to that church who now don't go to church at all because of his failure. So, Saul's sin was costly. His army, his sons, his life, the hope of the people. Finally, I want you to see that it costs Saul the loss of his honor. Verse 8. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa and they cut off his head and they stripped off his armor and they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. And then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Now this was a common practice. You'll remember that when we were you know, going through in chapter 5, the Philistines had a great victory. They took the Ark of the Covenant. They did the same thing, a similar thing with the Ark, where they took the Ark and they put it in the temple of Dagon. And uh, God had a unique way of dealing with Dagon, and that was a fun chapter, as the uh, idol kept falling over, and they kept running in, propping Dagon up. You, just a little clue. You might, you might realize you're following the wrong idol if you have to keep propping it up, you know. But, but, but they, they, they did this with, with uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and basically the idea was, we're going to stick it in our temple, and the message we're going to say is, hey, our God is better than your God. Our God is greater than your God, and the world delights to have you as a Christian train wreck your life, and then they can take that, and they can put it in the temple of their God and go, our God is greater than your God. Your God doesn't work out so well, Christian, right? And and we see this happen all the time. There's a restaurant chain up in the Pacific Northwest. They buy, you know, churches that have have collapsed, and not not physically, but the, the church has failed. They buy their buildings and they turn them into to pubs, to bars. And they, and they take the, the, the brewing apparatus and they stick it. Where do they put it in the building? Right at the altar. And, and what is it saying? It's saying our God is better than your God. Our way of life is supreme. Now it's bad enough when the enemies of God do that, but it's absolutely devastating when Christians do that. And how often do we as Christians, we see somebody fail and we, along with the unbelievers, we just pile on and we want to cast our own aspersion on that person. We want to weigh in on just how horrible of a sinner that they, they are or that they were. It grieves the heart of God. And I want you to notice that even though Saul has lost his honor, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they, they behave honorably. And we conclude with this, verse 11, it says, Now when the inhabitants of, inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and they traveled all night and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth-shan 
And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. And then they took their bones and they buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted seven days. And just a little point of business here. We've dealt with suicide. Let's deal with cremation. Is there anything that says you can't be cremated? No. Whatever. You're, you, you're dead. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, so if you die and you want to be cremated, far out. Knock yourself out. It's, there's nothing there. Some people go, well, wait a minute. You know, God says he's going to resurrect us and, and all of this. What happens if you're burnt? What's happened if somebody dies in a house fire? I mean, what's God doing there? Oh, I'm in trouble. I, can't, I mean, he made you out of the dirt. He can, he can reassemble your, you, you know, it's not a... It's not a big deal for God. So cremation here, don't worry about it. Okay, but let's deal with the bigger issue here. What happens is these men from Jabesh Gilead, if you remember, Saul, when he was walking with the Lord, what was his first military battle? To go rescue the men of Jabesh Gilead. See, their enemies had come against them, and they basically said, look, here's the deal. We're going to wipe you all out, or we'll gouge out your right eyes, all of your right eyes, and then you'll be our servants. And the guys are like, wow. Hmm, tough, tough thing to, to consider there. Would you give us seven days? This is what the men of Jabesh Gilead said. They go, hey, would you give us seven days to figure out, you know, if we can find somebody that'll come and, and fight you and, and set us free? Can we have, can we have a little trucy here, the little seven-day kind of truce? And, and amazingly, their enemies go, yeah, whatever, sure. You know, take seven days, see if somebody will come fight for you, no problem. But then, after that, you've got to decide if we're going to gouge your eye out and you're going to be our servants or if we're going to kill you all. So they're like, okay, well, Saul finds out and so he's mad, righteous anger, righteous indignation. He goes, he whoops their enemies, sets the men free. So what do these men do? Well, now they're in a place where they've got a guy, he's fallen. He's made a train wreck out of his life. And he's paid the price for it. But you know what? They're going to honor the man for the honorable thing that he did. And they're going to honor his sons for the honorable thing that he did. And they're fasting seven days reminiscent of the seven days that they waited upon the Lord saying, God, are you going to deliver us? And God said, yeah, I'm going to deliver you. Here's my point of application. We're just going to finish right here. This is is the deal. You got to make a decision whether or not you're going to live like David or you're going to live like Saul. That's really the, the big A-B of the book. David's a man who just says, look, God, I'm going to, for better or for worse, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to live my life for you. Saul's a man, had it all, and decided he was going to walk by sight, not by faith. He was going to be completely self-centered, self-focused. And we see the great cost at the end of the book. Cost them everything. You've got a decision to make today. Are you, are you going to, is it going to cost you everything because you're so insistent on having your self-will? Or are you going to trust the Lord?